Hello and welcome to the Archbishop's Corner. This is where we meet each week to talk with Hartford Archbishop Leonard Blair about faith, morals, the life of the church today, and how the gospel makes sense in an ever-changing world. This is where we go to find the answers to our lingering questions about the teachings of the church, living the faith life of a Catholic in contemporary society, and developing a stronger relationship with God. I'm Father John Gatzak, with many questions that you and I will ask Archbishop Blair as he responds to what matters to you in the Archbishop's Corner. When we meet in the Archbishop's Corner, it's always a new adventure, a journey in faith. And today's journey takes us beyond the cross, beyond the tomb, to resurrection life. We are people of hope. Some wise person once said, In my deepest, darkest moments, what really got me through was a prayer. Sometimes my prayer was, help me. Sometimes my prayer was, thank you. What I've discovered is that an intimate connection and communication with my Creator will always get me through because I know my support, my help, is just a prayer away. And it is through prayer that faith can be strengthened, faith in resurrection life. And our local guide to faith is Hartford Archbishop Leonard Blair. With just the answer to one question, he may help move us along on life's journey to successfully live out our faith and navigate our way through the challenges of our contemporary world. So thank you, Archbishop Blair, for inviting us into your space, into the Archbishop's Corner. How are you on this fourth Sunday of Advent? Very well, thank you. Today the Church celebrates the fourth Sunday of Advent, and therefore we light the last candle on the Advent wreath. As our preparation for Christmas is almost finished, the Gospel reading for today is from Matthew chapter 1, tells of when the angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph. We know he was faithful to God and said yes to God's plan for him to be Mary's husband and Jesus' foster father. What would it mean for us in our contemporary world to follow the example of St. Joseph? Well, I think uh, St. Joseph's um, life is marked by something that is not a popular word in our vocabulary. What's that? And that word is obedience. Ah, yes. Obedience. We remember, of course, that Adam and Eve, it was their disobedience that brought sin and death upon the world. And now it is the obedience, ultimately, of Christ himself. He became, as the scripture says, obedient even unto death. But prior to that, or as part of that great mystery, we have the obedience of Mary and Joseph, not against their will, not forced upon them, because obedience is not force. Mm -hmm. Obedience means that a person uh, accepts and says yes to whatever comes their way uh, in as much as it is the will of God to either will this positively or simply to permit it in our lives. And so, you know, sometimes we don't like the word blind obedience. We think that that's somehow demeaning. But let's face it, uh, for Mary and Joseph, it was a kind of blind obedience. Mary had no uh, way to corroborate, to uh, somehow investigate, to, uh, to imagine, to any reason to think that what this would mean. But she said yes to God, and so did Joseph. So that's the remedy for sin and death. And certainly Mary had no one that she could look to prior to her who went through a similar experience. And she could say, well, this happens periodically, in, and it has happened in history, because it never happened in history before. Correct. Although, certainly, the Old Testament is filled with those called by God who were obedient. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and by their obedience. You know, there's that beautiful tribute in the letter to the Hebrews of those who came before, who, you know, followed God's commandment to a place where they did not know where they were headed. But God brought them to this holy city. And um, that is exactly the kind of uh, model that in the Old Testament that Mary certainly would have understood what it means to be obedient to God. Let's take a look at one of the ways in which we celebrate Christmas these days, because tomorrow is look for an evergreen day. And it may be the last opportunity that some people have if they haven't already gotten a Christmas tree. Every year it seems as if people are putting up their Christmas trees earlier and earlier, often before Thanksgiving. And sadly, many take it down before the Christmas season ends since they start celebrating Christmas long before it begins. Society is forgetting when Christmas begins and ends. What are your thoughts on Christmas being celebrated earlier every year? Did you make that up, that it's look for an evergreen day? Is there really such a thing? Yeah. Yes, there is. You sound wounded like I've accused you of something terrible. No, no, no. (laughs) No, but I didn't make it up. That's what it's called. Tomorrow, December 19th, is look for an evergreen day. And I think the Christmas tree growers of America probably, came up with that right. day. You're probably right. Yeah, well, can't blame them. But, oh, but your question, yes. Well, of course, it's just part of the larger phenomenon. I'm sure we've talked about it before, the desacralization and uh, kind of the um, secularization, I guess is the other way to put it, of all of our holidays. and I mean, of our holy days, like Easter and Christmas So it's very simple. If you're a person of faith, you will celebrate it with the church for its true meaning, uh, which is the birth of Christ. And uh, you'll liturgically, by going to Mass on all these days, you will be mirroring that in your own celebrations at home. You'll be getting to the real meaning of Christmas. The way that we used to celebrate it, at least uh, that I remember, is that Advent was, as it should be, I think, a preparation time for Christmas, and then the Christmas season begins on the afternoon of the 24th and, and lasts until the baptism of the Lord. So don't take your Christmas tree down Christmas afternoon the, or, or, or stop celebrating Christmas. It should be something that is celebrated uh, beginning with Christmas Eve and, and lasts until, as I said, the baptism of the Lord. Um, in order to fully appreciate what this Christmas season means for us, what the the event of Christmas means for us, huh? Well, ideally that's the case, but certainly it's very difficult to to do that. But I think at the very least in our hearts and in our worship and our attendance at Mass, we still enter into the the full meaning of the Christmas season, which, as you say, extends into January. It's not just uh, done at noon on the 25th. Wednesday, December 21st, is the first day of winter. And while that means we have less daylight hours than any other day of the year, we need to remember to look on the bright side. So Wednesday is what they're calling Look on the Bright Side Day. And although nobody knows where this popular phrase originated, we do know that it's a way of someone telling us to be cheerful and optimistic despite the difficulties that we may be facing. Do you have any words, Archbishop, of encouragement for those who are going through hardships, especially during this time of year, when we're all supposed to be, and we're all expected to be cheerful and merry and jolly? What about those people who who can't be as cheerful as they might be expected to be? Well, you know, Jesus said that he gives us the joy that the world cannot give, that the world cannot take away from us. 
And we all live with the crosses, with our weaknesses, and with situations that are uh, troubled and uh, filled with trials for us. But we um, are people who, if we hold fast to Christ, then, you know, we can weather the storms and we can can find joy in the things that are important. Because the things that are important are not worldly things. They're uh, the things uh, of the Spirit. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, I suppose for people who have reasons to be sad or to be troubled, and, and especially to be in our society today who are isolated and alone, mm. I suppose Christmas can be more of a trial than a joy. Where did I read recently the tiny number of Americans now who are living in marriage? I say tiny because it, it, it's <laughs> – we may think that um, – the God-given meaning of family, which, of course, is so important for our happiness, both spiritual and physical and moral and mental, uh, that, and, and is so much at the heart of the celebration of Christmas, uh, traditionally anyway. You know, one would imagine that people who don't have these bonds uh, may find the season uh, kind of downcast. But those are huge social and spiritual problems that we can strive together to to resolve, but the only way we can resolve them is by people opening their eyes and recognizing the fundamental truths that come from God about the human person, about marriage, about the family, about religion, uh, and the place that the worship and honor of God has in leading to a happy and wholesome life. So if you don't have all those supports, then yeah, I, I mean, those of us who do have to make every effort to reach out and try to uh, help people. I think that's what Pope Francis was talking about when he said the church has to be a field hospital for the wounded. There are an awful lot of wounded people today. And sadly, they're wounded sometimes by their own choice. They just reject these fundamental truths about themselves, about the human person, about God. And so they, they've created a hole for themselves that's very difficult to crawl out of. And I don't know what the answer to it is other than to keep proclaiming by word and deed the gospel. Gospel means good news, the good news of Jesus Christ. And, um, you know, recently I, I went to the, uh, the ne- I think I've spoken before, maybe even the last program, about the neocatechumenal way mm-hmm. making an effort in our archdiocese. And it's not my intention to do a commercial for them <laughs> in every radio program, but uh, I do s- recently went to where the, these people gathered and to talk about the fundamental gospel message in their own lives. And, you know, people bring to these things their hurts and their their search for, for God, and, and, uh, and, and they even express them to one another. And this is very—it's not just therapeutic in a mental uh, health kind of way, but it, it's a spiritual uh, thing that, that without which we can't be he- healthy mentally. Uh, so uh, I'm giving a very long answer to your question, but I do think that— we have to get to the heart of things and, and not the superficial. And Saturday, of course, is Christmas Eve, which means that many people will be gathering with family and friends, singing Christmas carols, enjoying Christmas lights, finishing up on their gift wrapping. Do you have any special plans for Christmas Eve or Christmas Day, Archbishop? No, I, I, I forget what I'm doing at the cathedral. I, I think I'm having the big evening mass before and then the, the morning of those two masses I'm taking. Uh, so that's really, yeah, you know, we are priests. We are, we are busy about all those things. Uh, and and that, so, really uh, is, that really is special for all of us to be celebrating with our parish families the, the Christmas celebration, huh? Yes, and it's much to be hoped 
that with the rather dismal figures about church attendance post-COVID, or should I even say post-COVID because COVID is still with us, but these dismal figures uh, in most places, I really hope and pray and invite our listeners uh, that, uh, you know, have the importance of going to church at Christmas, uh, not just watching something on live stream or TV, but actually going to Mass and receiving our Lord worthily in Holy Communion. Uh, that, to me, is that has to be everything, really. Well, nothing takes the place of actually being there, being present, and, as you say, receiving the Eucharist and celebrating with other people. The television Mass is certainly for those individuals that can't get out or sick or elderly or what have you, but to actually be there, there's, there's no substitute. Yes, and that's a great service that you provide for people who can't, just physically are unable to go to Mass, to, to participate in that way. But for the able-bodied uh, and those who are, are well, this is, uh, this is important. Well, let's now take a look at the road to happiness in life, and this is where we examine the wisdom of Pope Francis, drawn from some of his writings. I'll read a short portion of the Holy Father's address, and then we'll ask you, Archbishop, to comment with your own thoughts on what Pope Francis has said. This is taken from his homily at Casa Santa Marta, delivered on October 3rd of 2014, and it's called, What Does the Road to Your Salvation Look Like? The Pope says, What do I think my road to salvation looks like? Will it be with Jesus or someone else? Am I free to accept salvation, or am I confusing freedom with autonomy and asking for the salvation that I think seems right? Do I believe that Jesus is the teacher of salvation, or am I seeking and paying gurus to teach me another way? Am I going to choose the right path, or am I going to find refuge in rules and commandments written by men? Is this what makes me feel safe? Can this sense of security if this is the right way to say this, by the salvation that Jesus gives us freely, the salvation that is a gift from God. Archbishop, your thoughts. Yes, well, I think what the Holy Father is talking about, of course, is uh, the gift of joy that Jesus comes to give us, even when we are burdened, uh, even when we uh, experience the heaviness of our own uh, weakness and sin. You know, everything Jesus says about this is so essential that, you know, yes, we have our yoke in life, but he makes it easy and light. You'll find rest for yourselves. You know, the the whole idea of, again, of that joy that only he can give. I I think it really echoes all the things we were talking about earlier Mm -hmm. about the true meaning of Christmas and how we can arrive at the, the authentic joy of the season, not superficial or worldly or materialistic, but that inner joy that that can that only he can give, and of course the Holy Father also highlights the notion notion of Mary as the uh, causa nostrae laetitiae, as it says in Latin, the cause of our joy, uh, because uh, she was the first uh, and most important of the member of the Church uh, that the, in the beginning, you know, she was the Church's first and most perfect member, and she's the one by her uh, consent to be the Mother of God, brought joy into the world. Let's take a look now at our gospel reading on this fourth Sunday of Advent. Today's gospel reading is from Matthew, the first chapter, and after the gospel is dramatically presented, we'll talk with you, Archbishop, and ask for your thoughts. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child of the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to send her away quietly. 
But as he considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. Archbishop, what are your thoughts as you hear this gospel account by Matthew? Well, I'm happy that it reminds us of the importance of St. Joseph. You know, if an angel appeared to Mary to tell her that she would be the mother of God, this gospel tells us that an angel also appeared to St. Joseph, who asked of him a similar kind of faith that was asked of Mary, that uh, contrary to all appearances and contrary even to all rational human reckoning, that he should not be afraid to take this woman who was pregnant, even though he, was, he knew himself clearly could not possibly be the father, to take uh, her into his home. And here again, Joseph did as the angel had commanded. Again, we return to the notion that we started with on the program about obedience. And it's through this obedience that Joseph uh, brought joy to himself and to the whole world. And probably is the most predominant feature that, that Scripture tells us of St. Joseph, his obedience to the Lord. Scripture gives us a look at the, the kind of man Joseph was. Yes, and it's the one thing that uh, our modern psyche rebels against, is obedience. obedience. Huh? Yeah. We're told not that obedience is servile and demeaning and dehumanizing. And, and of course, it, it can be if it's, if it's based on evil or oppression. But when it has to do with the things of God, it is the most liberating and fulfilling thing that could possibly, there could possibly be. This gospel shows us that the angel of the Lord appears to Joseph in a dream to ease his fears. Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for it is through the Holy Spirit that this child has been conceived. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus. Does God act in such ways today? I mean, sending angels in a dream to deliver a message from God? Well, apparitions have been known to happen. The church, you know, is very prudent about these things, and the claims of such things are put to a pretty severe test. But, uh, you know, certainly uh, there the apparitions of Our Lady that have been attested to by the church as being worthy of, of acceptance and uh, uh, belief were accompanied often by angelic uh, presence and, uh, you know, the prayer of the angels and such. So, yes, this is part of our teaching from Scripture and tradition of the existence of angels, and uh, yes, it certainly has happened. Let's take a look at some of the questions submitted by our listeners. For instance, Kelly from Middlebury says, I keep trying to do all that I can to help our children know of God's love for them. I want them to be truly Catholic, not merely in name, but as their deepest identity. In the face of a seemingly hostile culture, what can I do? Well, Kelly, I think the first thing you can do is to dedicate in prayer your children to our Lord and to his Blessed Mother, uh, their patron saints, and not to do it in an overbearing way that can be uh, maybe a little bit much for children or a way that somehow 
seems to force it upon them. But, you know, children have a wonderful sensibility for spiritual things. And I think by gently and lovingly doing this with them and for them, I, and, and for them to see your own practice of the faith and your own spirituality and devotion, again, not exaggerated, but healthy and balanced, I think that that speaks to them uh, and, and will accomplish the purpose for which you, uh, you're striving. Ed from Newington says, I've always thought that the Holy Family was poor and that in their poverty and humility, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph are models for all families. It's been said recently with developments in linguistics that the word for Joseph's occupation could have been carpenter, but it could also have meant a type of general contractor, which would have given Joseph a comfortable wage. What light can you shed on this? Yes, Ed, I think you're, you're onto something uh, that we have to be uh, careful uh, how we interpret in this sense that, yes, Jesus made it clear in the things that he said that uh, he was not uh, living the life of, the, of, of those with wealth. You know, he has said he had, he had no place to lay his head because he voluntarily chose uh, to live uh, this simple uh, kind of existence uh, in the fulfillment of his mission. And he told the disciples, you know, when they go, when they went out, not to carry much with them, to travel light. So every, and what he said about riches, I think of the rich young man who turned away sad because Jesus told him to sell what he had and give to the poor. But that doesn't mean that Jesus himself came from, you know, utter destitution. He came from a working family of Joseph. So you're right. It's poor, but not of abject poverty. Because you're right, if, if someone was a carpenter and had a trade back then, they would have no doubt have had a decent living. Jesus had, uh, and of course it's interesting, it was Judas was the one that kept the purse, but they did, um, you know, uh, have collections and funds uh, to, to see them through. The robe that Jesus had that they cast lots for when he was crucified, it was uh, a robe of some value because uh, uh, it was not something that was not just rags. Uh, the soldiers cast lots to see who would get it. So, you know, all these little things there remind us that it doesn't mean absolute destitution. It means that Jesus came from a, a working environment of simple people, and he, and he told us that we have to live in that same kind of detachment uh, from worldly things. Sal from Hartford says, It seems to have been a while since I have heard a truly great homily at Mass. The homilies I have been hearing tend to be light on Scripture, God, and prayer, and heavy on the priest himself, his personal experiences, and fundraising. It was always my understanding that the homily was to talk to the congregation about what the Catholic Church teaches. Is the homily meant to inform Catholics about church teaching? What is the purpose of the homily? Well, Sal, I hate to say it, but I I think in many, I, I have no doubt that you are right in your, for me, painful characterization of some of what is said from the pulpit. Yes, a homily is supposed to be a reflection on the scriptures to lead us to holiness, a greater appreciation for the mysteries of faith and the response that each of us is called to give to those scriptures and mysteries so that we will live a life in Christ. That certainly doesn't exclude the personal experiences of of the priest. And when appropriate, which is not, I hope, all that often, it may even be about fundraising as an exception. 
the homily is is really uh, meant for the purposes I said, and I know that it's one of the things that our our Catholic people have said over and over again that they often find very uh, dissatisfying at liturgy, and we try, I try as bishop to encourage our priests uh, in in this. We we certainly try with our seminarians uh, to prepare them to preach well. You know, interestingly, I send the priests uh, every Christmas uh, a gift, and it's usually a book. And this year, it was a book uh, of uh, commentary on the cycle A readings for this coming church year for every Sunday, to try to help them uh, with some background information, some some going more in depth in the scriptures about the meaning of the scriptures. Hopefully, is an inspiration for them to preach better, and I include myself in that as well. Well, that truly um, takes the scripture, Archbishop, and asks, how do we apply? what was written almost 2,000 years ago to today's experience in order to make me a better person, closer to God, closer to God's people. How does the homily provide enthusiasm for living the Christian life, in other words? Yes, and a good homily has to be prepared. It, it can never be off the cuff. It has to be prepared, Is there... thoughtfully so. It doesn't necessarily have to be a written text. Uh, I write out my homilies. I always have, but I in a style and in a manner of delivery that it's not meant to just be a read document. It's meant to be spoken. But some priests, uh, and occasionally I do give a homily without any uh, notes or, 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 or written text, but at the very least a, a priest or deacon needs to uh, discipline uh, himself to have a beginning, a middle, and an end that's clear uh, with a content that fits the description of what a homily should be. Betty from Suffield says, My cousin who just got divorced is upset that she can't receive communion and is thinking of leaving the Catholic Church. I told her she was wrong, but she insists that is what her pastor told her. I thought that if you were divorced and not married, you could still receive communion. What is the Church's rule about receiving communion after getting divorced? Well, I don't know the circumstances of this case, but uh, you're correct, Betty, that Sometimes people uh, get divorced against their will. Sometimes people get divorced uh, because they have to protect themselves from physical harm or emotional violence, and they don't seem to have m- much choice for their own protection. So divorce in itself uh, doesn't necessarily mean that a person somehow has transgressed the, the, the sacredness of marriage or the meaning of the sacrament. But if they're in that situation, unless they get a a declaration that shows that the marriage that they left was invalid from the beginning, that's what an annulment is. If they don't, if that's not shown, then no, they should not receive Holy Communion if they get, if they attempt remarriage. But if they, because it can't be a valid marriage. But otherwise, there's no reason why they couldn't receive Holy Communion. Now, I don't know the circumstances uh, other than what you, Betty, have have said, but on the face of it, in answer to your question, that there's nothing to prevent a person from receiving Holy Communion who's divorced if they haven't attempted marriage without a declaration of nullity for the first marriage. Would you recommend that a person who perhaps Betty's friend if she still believes that she should not receive communion, she should talk about her situation with a priest? Well, yes, you always should talk to a priest when in doubt or have a question. Jared from Kent says, During the Angelus on the Solemnity of the Immaculate Conception, 
Pope Francis reminded Christians that Mary is with us in battle, and she is our sister and mother. He said that we who struggle to choose good can entrust ourselves to her. Pope Francis also said we should consecrate ourselves to Mary. What is Marian consecration, and how do we consecrate ourselves to the Blessed Mother? Well, uh, Jared, I think, uh, first of all, in your spiritual life, in your prayer, uh, as you offer prayers uh, to Mary, the Mother of God, as you uh, speak to God uh, in prayer uh, to Jesus, uh, you can simply, in your own words, say that it's your desire to consecrate yourself to Mary. But I think that uh, the great uh, teacher of this was St. Louis de Montfort about consecration to Mary. And I would suggest you might find a good uh, book on uh, the writings or teaching of St. Louis de Montfort. He was a French uh, priest uh, in, I believe, the 18th century. Uh, and he talked about this uh, consecration to, to Mary. Uh, and that's a more formal and it's a more expanded spirituality of this consecration that I think you would find uh, helpful. Maybe even praying the rosary each day might be a, a step in that direction. Huh? Certainly. Archbishop, we've come to the end of our time together. Can you close our program with a prayer and a blessing, please? Lord, as the celebration of your nativity draws ever closer, we pray with all the greater fervor that we may, by your grace, prepare our hearts uh, for this uh, great mystery that the truth of your incarnation and your call to each of us to holiness may be renewed and refreshed and strengthened during this holy season. And may Almighty God bless you all in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Archbishop, thank you for inviting us into the Archbishop's Corner. We look forward to joining you next week when we can celebrate Christmas together. You have a wonderful week. You too.